The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. As you guys know, uh, this past Wednesday we started that series on Wednesday night, and the first thing that we looked at was the issue of abortion as we started our Worldview series on Wednesday nights. That same day, a congressional hearing began in Washington, D.C., dealing with the same subject, with funding to Planned Parenthood. I think we're all aware, I would hope at this point, about the videos that have come out that have shown uh, Planned Parenthood selling fetus parts. Let me, let me say that differently. Selling baby parts um, for a profit and, and the things that have been going on there. So a, a congressional hearing began um, that very day. Um, in fact, one of the people who testified at that hearing is a, a woman who's going to be here in town, I believe it's October 8th, when our local pregnancy center um, is doing a benefit banquet, and she's going to be the speaker. She is a woman who um, was, she survived a saline abortion. Um, the mother went in to abort her, and somehow, by God's grace, she survived it, and the doctor was out of the room. The nurse noticed that this baby was still alive and, and immediately began protocol now to save that baby, and so this woman now has become um, a spokesperson for the gospel and for um, the issue of, of life, and so she's going to be here speaking in town, um, and all these things were going on, and then a, a friend of mine got a hold of me about an organization that he has become involved in recently, and, and we wanted to give him an opportunity to share with you guys what's going on, especially because this Wednesday night, for example, when we talked about the issue of abortion, many of you were like, how can we help? What can we do? I mean, we're just here in Medford. What can we do for this? And this is a, a great opportunity. So I'm going to have you guys welcome up a friend of mine. Um, some of you guys know him as Jeffrey Gilbert. Many of you know him and don't know it because most recently or a couple years ago, he was the drummer for Cutlass and toured for a great, great long time. Um, but would you guys give it up for Jeff Gilbert and just give him some of your time for a minute? Get my microphone over here. Heritage, what's up? It is amazing being back in the Rogue Valley. Guys, th this wasn't here last time I was here, I don't think. This is amazing. How y'all doing? I know Jeff just gave a, a pretty gnarly intro to what I'm about, so I, I need to start with this. Um, I'm going to just share a quick snippet of my testimony and what God has had uh, going on in my life in the last you know decade in a couple minutes, so I'll be quick about that, but... Um, I need to start here. If you are a post-abortive mom or dad sitting in this room, I want you to know how much I love you, how much I dream of being able to even wash your feet and tell you how much Jesus is covering you to forgive you with any potential guilt or hurt or pain that you may have been carrying for X amount of time since that day that you went through what you went through. I need to start there. Because the topic of abortion seems to be very, very deep and dark and hard because we sit and wait and just kind of saturate ourselves in the darkness of what abortion is. But my heart is to change the culture of the perspective of abortion and this dramatic fight between pro-life and pro-choice and this exploited woman or even man and baby whose life is on the line in the middle of this massive bloodbath. So I want to start there, just to get that off the table. Um, and I'm going to be here all through service and after service, so I'd love to meet you and talk to you, and I, I'd be honored to meet you, um, every single one of you, um, if you're willing to, to stick around for a little bit and say, hey. Uh, but, you know, God has been doing some incredible things in my life. I've, I'm blessed, guys. I grew up in the Rogue Valley. I went to South Medford High School, went to Jeff Jefferson Elementary School. I grew up here, and I learned to play music here. And uh, as a lot of you know, when you think of the Rogue Valley, you don't think that this is really the place to go become something real big outside of town. And so I always had these dreams and ambitions of being able to go around the world and play music, uh, never knowing how realistic it really was, but I just thought I'd give it a shot. And for some crazy reason, God said, yeah, go for it. You can do it. And so my brother and I were in a band called Seven Places, and we had a worship night out at Applegate for years, and that was fun. And got signed and, and went off and, and toured, and after that, a buddy of mine named John Micah called me up and said, hey, Jeff, we need a new drummer in our band, Cutlass. We're, we're just getting started. You want to come play with us? And that turned into an eight-year ministry for me. And, uh, you know, I, I met a girl named Shannon Michelle uh, eight years ago, and she, she wrecked me, man. She, she changed everything for me. And, uh, and so I, I pursued her pretty stinking hard. I, I scared her 
pretty, pretty bad, but I just wouldn't give up. And um, about a year after we met, um, I finally convinced her to marry me. And since then, we've uh, had three kids. My son Slater will be five in November. My daughter Stevie will be three in October. And we have a new recruit to our family, Winnie Joy, and she's three and a half months old. And, you know, we're blessed. Uh, but when I was in the band, uh, you know, three years ago uh, is when I departed Cutlass. And the reason I left was because I was gone over 200 days the first year of my son's life. And I was devastated by that. It was technically our most successful year on paper concerning concerts or attendance or records or radio or whatever you want to you know, look at, at success by. But for me, I felt, I felt like a complete loser because I wanted to be with my son and my wife, and I wanted to be part of developing that spiritual, emotional, physical, mental culture um, that the Lord has required us fathers to be a part of and, and to champion. And so my wife and I made this intense decision to just leave the band without another job set up, without a savings in the bank, and without any income coming in. It was, it was scary. It was devastating. But here's the cool thing. The Lord gave me a very clear direction, and that was to fight for the sanctity of my family. That's all I knew I was supposed to be doing. Son, fight for your family. Build that rock ceiling over them. Protect them from the elements of the world. Show them my love and my mercy. Raise your children in that. Wash your wife in that. And so I started doing that, and the Lord was providing in miraculous ways. I was still going out looking for work, whether it was Trader Joe's or Costco or Home Depot. I couldn't get a job anywhere until the Lord moved us out to Orange County, California, three years ago from Nashville. And that's when really cool things started happening. I, I jumped on board with an organization called Food for the Hungry, and I was able to bring a bunch of my buddies in the music industry uh, into a partnership with Food for the Hungry. We were able to go around the world serving kids and families that live in the most extremely impoverished communities in the world. And uh, just three, uh, let's see here, about two and a half years being with Food for the Hungry, we've seen almost 65,000 children sponsored. Pretty cool, pretty cool. Um, and it's still going. We're not stopping. We're just continuing that. It's been amazing. Um, but I was really thinking through uh, the kids in our own country. That was a question that people would ask me a lot when I'd be on a platform like this and talk about why it's important to sponsor a child, which is extremely important. And they say, well, what about the kids in our own country? What about here domestically on our soil? What are you doing about those kids? And I said, well, to be honest with you, we're, we're one of the richest nations in the world. Our kids have it way better than most kids do in the world. So I just want you to know that. Our kids are really well taken care of, even though there is some difficulty we go through. It's nothing like the extreme poverty that I've seen in the, in the world. But the Lord started tugging on my heart. Son, who are the most vulnerable children in your country? Who are the ones that don't have a voice? Who are the ones that don't have anybody fighting for them? Last year, 1.2 million kids lost their lives because somebody told their gatekeeper that it was a choice. And that's tragic. And we all know those numbers. We all know uh, the, the devastating side of abortion. But here's the exciting part of what God is doing in that culture is right now, this is the most pro-life generation uh, ever accounted for since the Roe versus Wade trial in 1973 when abortion was, was legalized. This is the most pro-life generation. But we're continuing to figure out innovative ways to impact culture, to impact society in ways that you've never seen before. That's absolutely, completely cutting the evil head off of the abortion uh, agenda. And what we're able to do is, as you guys know, there's a phenomenal pregnancy resource center right here in the Rogue Valley. They're doing a tremendous job. They are serving moms and saving babies on a regular basis. And what I get to do is I've partnered with an organization called Save the Storks. You all have a, a card that looks like this. Can you hold it up for me? I want to make sure you all have one. So look through that page or whatever when you guys walked in. If you don't have one of these, then I got some ushers that are walking around and they want to hook you up. I don't see very many hands, so does that mean you don't have one? I want to make sure you got one. Because there's going to be something going down and you're going to want one. So if you don't have one, raise your hand, please. If you do not have a card. So those ushers are going to walk around. Keep that hand up nice and high for me, please. Because this is what's going on. We have taken the perspective from Jesus with the woman at the well. When he showed up to meet with her where she was at, and ministered to her and told her about living water, right? 
It was tremendous. She went into town. She told 4,000 people. The entire town got converted based off of that ministry of Jesus meeting her where she was at. So we thought, man, there's some incredible statistics about a mom who's in a crisis pregnancy, a woman who was, who's gotten pregnant, gotten knocked up, doesn't know what to do with it. The world is telling her that it's her choice to abort the baby because it's her body, even though it's really the baby's body. But the world is telling her something. How do we help her make a better decision? Keep your hands nice and high, guys. If you don't have one of these, please keep your hands nice and high. The way you do it is you, it, you offer an ultrasound, a sonogram. When that mom sees that child moving with that heartbeat beating, something changes in her. She recognizes that it's not just a, a mass of cells or a clump of tissue. She recognizes that as a human being dwelling inside of her body. And she will choose life. So what we decided to do is we took a Mercedes Sprinter platform. You guys seen those Euro-looking Mercedes buses? We've turned them into the most beautiful high-tech mobile medical clinics you've ever seen. We partner with pregnancy resource centers. We outfit them with, uh, with ultrasound technology. And we offer women in a crisis pregnancy in front of abortion clinics with free ultrasounds and counsel. Four out of five women that board our buses are choosing life. We're seeing pregnancy centers grow four times in the first year of going mobile. If a pregnancy center is seeing, seeing 200 women one year, by going mobile, they're going to see 800 the next year. We've seen thousands of babies saved and mothers served through this ministry. And a year ago, almost to the date, September 14th, I met a gal named Sherry. I was speaking at a church called Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa down in Orange County. And I got off the platform, and I was walking out to the courtyard. Thankfully, we had a bus there for people to see. And this gal, Sherry, she grabbed me, and she said, Jeff, I have one question for you. I said, yeah, what's up? She said, where were you when I was going through this? And obviously, I started crying. I'm an emotional guy. I don't care. You guys can know that. I cry a lot. And I started crying. I said, tell me your story. What, what happened? She said, 20 years ago, she got stuck in a situation, and the world told her to get rid of it, that she can move on with her life, that it would take care of the problem. She said, that day, it only started the problem. Where were you when I was going through this? That's everything I needed to hear. That's everything I needed to know. At that very moment, the Lord said, go champion the Sherry's of the world. Go prop up the moms who lost their baby that day, who were exploited by a culture telling them to do one thing, when that actually started the problem. That didn't end a problem. That began a problem. And we as the church have got to be committed to reaching the Sherry's, so to speak, of the world. And we can do that by going mobile. That day a year ago, 12 months ago, it was 364 days ago today, we had four buses. Today we have 16 buses. We're saving a minimum of 400 babies per year, 400 moms per year, 400 dads per year. That's 1,200 people per year per bus. We have 10 more that we're in the middle of building right now. And I grew up in this valley, and I want to see a bus in this valley. That would be a dream come true. And I want to see what Heritage would want to do as well. Because my heart is not to be up on this platform saying, I'm doing all this, but instead, I want to assemble an army of people who love life, who love Jesus, who want to champion their community and walk into that glory together and say, the relationship doesn't end on that bus, it begins on that bus. And I know that the pregnancy center right here in town is going to do everything they can to champion that mom into a relationship with Jesus, into a community of people that will cover her that will help her with the resources that she needs. It's a beautiful, tangible ministry. And I was even talking to a good friend that I've known for years this morning. He said, Jeff, you never hear about the good things that are going on. You never hear about the beautiful stories of somebody being saved from such a horrible situation. I get to be the guy to deliver the message, and you get to be the people to respond to it. This card right here is what is changing lives. There's an insert inside of it. Check out this little fold right here. Do me a favor and write your name at the top of it. Pull out a pen. I got tons of pens on my table too, but write your name at the top of it. And I have a four and a half vi uh, minute video that I made with Sherry. And you're going to be able to see her and see her, her story, hear her story yourself. And this is what I'm going to ask you to do. 
I'm just going to be bold right now, guys. I'm just going to do it, all right? God has put it on my heart to mount up a team of 15,000 people in the next five years that would be committed to giving 30 bucks a month to what we're doing. With that, we could be building up to 40 buses a year with that kind of group, with that kind of army. If we can get 65,000 children sponsored in a couple years, I think we can get 15,000 storks sponsored in five years. What do you guys think? What do you think? Do you really care about life? Do you really want to champion these moms? Do you want to see this church overflowing? Do you want to see this valley committed to changing the culture where we no longer need abortion? I'm just going to tell you one story before we play this video. Two stories, actually, and I'll make it quick. In Florida, we have a Muslim abortionist who came to us. He's been practicing abortion for 25 years. He's known as Dr. Death in this community. When our stork bus rolled up, he wanted to know who we were because, uh, man, we were making a huge, huge effect on the girls in this community. We told him that we love the sisters and daughters of our community, and we are here to serve them with the best possible medical and counsel support possible. He said, I need to see you inside my office. They called us. They said, hey, this abortionist wants us to go inside of his clinic. We said, it's probably a trap. He's probably going to get you arrested. We'll bail you out if you get arrested, so it's your call. They said, no, we're going in. They go in. They sit down with him. He takes his glasses off. He says, I'm a Muslim man. I studied medicine in Tehran, Iran. I came over here hoping to serve women. I ended up becoming an abortionist because that's the only way I could make a living. 25 years later, I've known that just about every single girl walking through my door should not be here, and I've never known where to send them before uh, or until now, until you guys showed up. Will you please keep that bus parked in front of my clinic so I can send them to you before they come to me? Story number two. Our bus in Hoboken, New Jersey, is now seeing 100% of the girls boarding our bus choosing life. 100% in front of an abortion clinic. That abortion clinic is closing down this month because we've intercepted so much of their clientele. We didn't do it by picketing them. We didn't do it by crushing them. We didn't do it by being their enemy. We did it by being their friend. We did it by washing their feet. We are seeing abortionists come to Jesus. We are seeing security guards outside of abortion clinics coming to Jesus because they're seeing these moms coming off our bus, wiping tears of joy and relief off of their face. They're not clenching an empty womb, vomiting on their way out of an abortion clinic. They're being saved. Please be a part of this. If you're one of those people that are saying, you know what, 30 bucks is a big chunk of money in this month, but I'm going to do it because I want to be a part of building those 10 buses that Storks is committing to building right now, and I also want to be a part of, Lord willing, getting one of these buses to the Rogue Valley, the Josephine County, as soon as possible. So please check out this video. It's four minutes long. Pray over that card and say, Lord, is this something that you will champion my family to be a part of? Fill it out. I have a table out there. I'd love to receive it by the end of today. I'd love to talk to you. I'd love to meet you. I got more resources out there. Please come say hey. I cannot wait to say hi and talk to you. Give you a hug. Give you a handshake. Whatever. Before you guys go. So go ahead and cue up that video. God bless you guys. Thank you so much. I'm Jeff Gilbert, founder of the ES Collective. I was speaking at a church in 2014 and I was speaking on Save the Storks and there's this one woman who approached me and she was so bold and she was so direct and I was walking toward the bus. I literally had just left the platform and within two minutes outside in this courtyard, I get a tap on the shoulder and I turn around and say, hi. And all she said was, where were you when I needed you? Where were you when I was going through this? And I, my, my eyes welled up with tears and I said, will you tell me your story? They were just going to remove some tissue. I didn't think much about it because this is the medical professional field, or at least that's what I thought. When it comes down to the day that you're going to have an abortion, no one's going to be in that room but you. You never get to see a heartbeat or hear one. And the fact that it's not tissue, it's a life, it's a human being. That conversation was not had and I don't feel like that's fair. No one fair. wants to talk about how painful and lonely it is. Every year after having an abortion, you calculate how old your child would be. Then you wonder what life would be like if you had the baby. You will never forget and you'll always wonder, what if? I 
disassociated myself with the guilt. The anesthesia kicks in and you start to wonder what your life would be like, how it would make you a different person, how this child would have been a blessing. I just wanted someone to help me slow my thinking down. I knew right in that very moment God was going to be doing something with our stories. As a young woman, a lot of people make abortion out to be the only solution, and it's not. It's not as simple as it seems. You don't walk away unaffected. Your story's going to change the world. I met this guy named Joe, and he's got this incredibly innovative ministry called Save the Storks. And that changed everything for me. It gave me an exact understanding of what this calling about fighting for the sanctity of family was all about. When I was in utero, my mom was presented with the option to abort me. And I'm so grateful for her choice because she was given a choice and she chose what I believe to be very well. Save the Storks is doing something that is very near and dear to my heart. You have a vulnerable, scared, completely contaminated in fear woman who doesn't know what she's going to do. She's terrified. She wants somebody to slow her thoughts down. How do you do that within this 100-foot journey between her car and the front steps of an abortion clinic? How do you reach her? How about we give them a pregnancy resource center on wheels? And so what we can do is we can take a Mercedes Sprinter um, mini bus and build it out with state-of-the-art ultrasound technology. And we can perform ultrasounds anywhere in the public space, college campuses, in front of abortion clinics, beachfronts. I want to go where the hurting people are. I don't expect them to come to me. Jesus never did, so why should I? I wish that van would have been there in front of the clinic that I went into. So maybe I would have my own baby today and share that instead of this story. We can't do this without you. We need your support. We need your support. My name is Sherry Jacobs. My name is Jeff Gilbert. That was where I was then. This is where I am now. This is where I am now. I've joined Save the Storks. I've joined Save the Storks. Thank you so much, Jeff, man. It's a privilege to have you here, man. Um, um, and it's just been such good. I get to spend a lot of time with him this week and just hear some of the stories of the things that are going on. And it's just an exciting thing. So, so if, if this is a topic that is, that is one that the Lord's been putting on your heart, then this is an avenue, I think, by which you can, can contribute to some of the kingdom work that's going on and see a real impact. So make sure you stop and say hi to him. Whether you're giving financially or not, make sure you stop by the booth. They have a table out there. See more about what's going on. At the, and I started to say at the very least, but maybe at the very most, a good thing to say is just to be praying for what they're doing. Um, man, God is doing stuff. And I, I still, I fully believe that we're going to see Roe versus Wade overturned in our lifetime. I'm convinced of it. The science is just too good. Um, the stuff that's out there is just just breaking through a lot of the, the, the lies and things that have been a part of this movement for so long. Um, and I think that that's an area, you know, we, we as Christians can be like, oh, we're losing in this and the world's getting, we have marriage issues now and all this stuff. And we can feel more and more marginalized. But man, this is something that the Lord's doing that honestly, I believe we're winning. Um, and I think we need to celebrate what the Lord's doing and, and, uh, and, and just be a part of it. So, Jeff, thanks for coming. Hey, um, would you guys do me a favor? Turn to Ephesians chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, stick a hand up nice and high. One of those guys will come by and hand you one of those so that you can, uh, can uh, track along with us. And uh, we're going to knock out real quickly a little section here of Ephesians chapter 3 that's actually an often overlooked one and I think done erroneously. Ephesians chapter 3 is where we're going to be this morning. And we're going to read verses 1 through 13, and then go back and talk about a little of it. If you're panicking because I'm just now starting and it's 5 after 12, don't worry, I want to watch football too. So uh, we're going we're gonna to blitz through this one today. 
And so if you'll just read along with me, Ephesians 3, verse 1, says this. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, Though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. God, I ask that you would just grace us, Lord, by your spirit with an understanding of your word, an understanding of what you're doing, Lord, an understanding of our call and our identity in you. And I pray, God, that that same spirit would then empower us to follow you to a greater and greater degree. Lord, continue, we pray, to, to mold us into the image of your son. And I pray, God, that as we open up your word right now, you would speak to us and you would teach us. And so, Lord, as we pray often, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O oh, my king, my rock, my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Guys, this is an odd passage. It may not seem so right away, but it's odd. The Bible, we believe here at Heritage Christian Fellowship, is 100% inerrant, 100% inspired. We don't just hold a book. It's not just a collection of historical writings. These are the very inspired words of God given to us, preserved through the ages. What we hold in our hands is a miracle and a beautiful one. But... We need to understand something of the nature of the Bible that I think is refreshing and awesome. For example, in Christ Jesus, we have what's called the hypostatic union. Jesus was fully God, amen? He was also what? Fully man. And somehow those two came together in a miracle that theologians through the decades have referred to as this hypostatic union where 100% man, 100% God came together in the person of Jesus Christ. Well, the Bible says something about Jesus. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and it says that the Word became flesh when speaking of Jesus. So it ought not surprise us that there's a unique combination in the Word itself that's very similar. You see, the Bible is 100% the divine inspired Word of God. Amen? But it's also 100% written by humans. See, when God inspired the word, he didn't put people into comas and trances and they just write out exactly what God would say necessarily as God would say it. But instead, God used the personalities and humanity of each person who wrote each different book of the Bible. And so you end up with letters by Peter that sound, well, they sound like Peter. Letters written by Paul that sound like Paul. You read poems and psalms and different things, and there is an element of, and it is, not in a sinful way and not in an erroneous way, but a fully human element in all the different writings in Scripture. And I think that brings a relatability to it that we ought not ignore. And in this particular passage highlights one of them that I think is awesome. Because right here in the middle of text, Paul is going from Ephesians 1 all the way through Ephesians 2 through this grand speech. He's painting this incredible portrait. But our text right here, basically from verse 2 through verse 13, is a complete and total detour. If you're like me, if you're one of those people that just gets easily distracted by things, you know, oh, squirrel, you know, that kind of a thing, it's similar to that. Paul is literally mid-thought, and then he goes, oh, wait a minute. 
And he begins to talk about something else completely. And because of that, you'll find actually a lot of theologians, a lot of commentators, a lot of teachers actually sort of skip this part because they almost view that it's out of place with the flow of the rest of the passage. And I think that's a mistake. I think it's good for us to be able to understand this today. Because here's what Paul's doing. In Ephesians 1 and 2, Paul's saying, guys, do you understand who you are? Do you understand? God has saved you. He has freed you from sin and guilt, not because you earned it, not because you did a lot of good things and it's a reward. Solely by his grace, he has promised you and given to you salvation and forgiveness. There's no more guilt. There's none of those things. But guys, not just that. He's also adopted you into his family. He's made you joint heirs with Jesus. You are now his son. And Paul, as you read through Ephesians 1, is gushing. It's like he's just getting worked up and excited as he's speaking to them these truths. And he goes into chapter 2 and he's like, and guys, he saved you from such darkness and such sin and such damnation. But not only that, he's brought you into a new family here. He's given you the church, and he talks about the importance of the church and the community that we have together. People in our day and age that say, yeah, I'm saved. I just don't think I need to go to church. It's not really part of kind of how I follow Jesus. That, that Paul would be like, what are you talking about? That, that's insane. That's like going to McDonald's and not getting the fries. I mean, why would you do such a thing? I'm sorry, in and out and not getting the fries. That's what we do here, right? Uh, you know, I, we ended up there as a staff on opening day, and the fry machine broke. Fail, right? So it's like that. Like, what do you mean? You're, you're saved following Jesus and you're not in the church? That's, that's, that doesn't compute. That doesn't even work. And so, so he's going into this thing about the church and he talks about the diversity of the church and how there's different people from different cultures and that there's unity in Christ, which we talked about last week. And he's going on and on. And so, so coming right out of that thought, guys, you're saved, you're adopted into the family, you're this new community, this new creation, the church, and it's diverse and unity, and he's going into a thought that's going to end up in a prayer, and he suddenly just has a knee-jerk change of direction and throws in a whole nother thought. You can see it, because look at verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, dash, and then he goes off, hey, squirrel, and there's a whole nother thought. And you can see when he comes back in, because look down at verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knee. So he comes back to his thought here. So he's saying, hey guys, because everything I said, chapter one, chapter two, all of this stuff, because of this stuff, and he's about to go into a prayer for that church and, and to pray for strength and mission and all these things. But he suddenly, guys, for this reason, I bow my knees to pray for you. I'm, a, I'm I, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus. And wait a minute. Um, hey, I assume that you guys know and he goes off into this complete other tangent. Now, what in the world could be so important that it would interrupt something like that? Even prayer. Like, you would never interrupt prayer in my house growing up. Mom and dad would beat you down. Like, you don't interrupt prayer at all. And yet, this is what Paul does. So what could be so important that it would interrupt such an incredible train of thought? Well, well, the issue, we get to see exactly what's going on because the, the theme verse, if you will, of these 13 verses or 14 verses is in verse 13. He says, so I ask that you not lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. His whole sidetrack is summarized or the purpose of this sidetrack is given in verse 13. I don't want you to lose hope because I'm suffering. See, here's what he's doing. Verse 1, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and he's about to go on, and that word prisoner just seems to resonate. Prisoner. See, Paul's in jail. As Paul writes this, he's in a Roman prison that he will never get out of again. And here he is. He's been explaining to these people the grandeur of who they are in Christ. And this is Paul. Follow me as I follow Christ, Paul. And following Christ has got Paul where? In jail. And it's going to end his life. And so Paul has this thought, wait a second, when they stop and think about the fact that I'm, I'm painting this portrait of who they are and who they are to be, and then they realize, Paul, you're in jail, are they going to be discouraged? Are they going to go, Paul, but I don't want to follow you. <laughs> I mean, if, if following you meant go to jail, and Jesus himself came, and where did he end up? They crucified him. I, I don't know, Paul. I don't know if I'm down with this, man. 
And, and Paul, you're our leader and they've got you. Doesn't that mean us next? What do we do with this? And so Paul understands the reality of human nature that, man, people are going to get discouraged. People are going to have questions. I thought Christ was leading us to victory and you're saying follow us as you sit in jail in Rome? What are you doing, Paul? And so Paul has this grand and beautiful response in these 13 verses here in Ephesians chapter 3. And is his response, he's saying this, and I'll paraphrase. He's saying, guys, I have been given stewardship of a grand mystery. Now, mystery then was different than mystery now. A mystery now is something that we don't know the end of it. We don't know what it means. It's something we don't know, and it's left for us to figure out. So if you read a mystery novel or you watch a mystery movie, you don't know who did it. You're trying to figure it out. And even the artists or the writers themselves are usually trying to throw clues your way to throw you off. And even the best mystery movies have the little sudden turns at the end that you never saw coming. But we watch those movies or we read those books trying to figure it out all along. A mystery is something we don't know. But the word Paul uses there is different in that particular culture. Mystery means it's something that has been revealed to me, but not them. I've been given knowledge of something that is intended to be passed on. This mystery is something to be proclaimed that they're not aware of yet. It'd be like being in the, the news industry now, and you've got the breaking news that no one else has yet, and your responsibility in gaining that headline is to pass that on to your readers and to your audience. So Paul's saying this, I've been given stewardship of a mystery. And of course, we know he's talking about the gospel. He's saying, in a world now that believes that the ones in charge, the people in power are the victors, and remember, this is during Roman occupation, when Rome is the leading army, the leading nation in the world, they control everything. Everyone's under their thumb. And it would look as if this is the ultimate power and kingdom in all of the world, the Roman Empire. And no one would argue that. But Paul's going, but I know something you don't know. So there's another kingdom. And God's told me about victory that comes through not military strength, but through weakness. That Jesus came and laid his life down for us and has now given us forgiveness of sin. He's called us into a new and real kingdom. That, that we haven't earned this. In fact, we deserve none of this. But God loves us so much that he has poured his grace out on us. And if we just simply believe we are adopted into the family of God. And that this kingdom is real. This kingdom is moving now. And one day this kingdom will be fully inaugurated. There will be no more Roman Empire. There will be no more of the authorities and powers on earth. There will be Jesus Christ ruling and reigning from on high. And somehow, in the biggest mystery of all, we get to rule and reign with him and be part of this kingdom. That's the mystery I've been given. And they don't know this. And so my job, in my, my, the thing I've been given stewardship of, is to share this mystery with the world there. Paul responds to worries that they'll get discouraged about his imprisonment by pointing them to something that is infinitely bigger than who he is, infinitely bigger than his suffering, infinitely bigger than his imprisonment, bigger news than all of that. The, really, the way Paul does this detour teaches us as a church a lot about how to handle suffering and discouragement and hardships. Because Paul's really honest. The Bible itself is really honest about suffering and hardship. Like Paul, he goes into this, and first, he's not naive about his suffering. Like Paul's not going, I, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus, oh, by the way, did you guys hear I'm in jail? What is up with that? I can't figure it out either. I've been doing everything God wants me to do, and it's not working out, and here I am. What in the world? Will somebody bail me out, please? This is messed up. Doesn't do that at all. Paul also doesn't have like this sort of spiritual drill sergeant approach to suffering. Guys, we as Christians are going to suffer and you just need to toughen up and push through it. Just push through. You can do it. Just go, go, go. Kind of a drill sergeant approach. He doesn't do that at all. And, and he also doesn't take a, a romantic approach about it or as I like to call cheesy Christianese approach that says hardship's there but let's act like it's not. Or, or let's just go, how you doing? I'm blessed. You're blessed? Didn't you lose your job and your house burned down this week and your car broke down on the way to church today? You're ble I'm blessed. Why? 
Shouldn't you be crying? No, but, and, and maybe an over-romanticized, like, no, because God's working everything out for good, and I'm just waiting to see it. You know what the reality of Christianity is that no one wants to talk about? Is that, yeah, the scriptures do say that God works all things together for good for those who love the Lord, but it never says we'll always see it. Do you know that? Paul's in jail, and he's not going to get out. Paul is not in this lifetime going to see all the good that's going to come out of all of his suffering. He's not going to see it himself. He believes that it's there, and it's there, but he's not necessarily going to see it. And so Paul doesn't over-romanticize any of those things. And then Paul also doesn't have a sort of stoic approach that just says, yeah, there is suffering, and it is there, and it is real, but we need to have a mind-over-matter approach. And so you just turn your eyes on Jesus and don't even think about what's going on here. Pretend it's not there and just move forward. Actually, the Bible does the exact opposite. The Bible calls us to think about suffering. The Bible calls us to understand the difficulties that we're going through, but to think about it in a very specific way. I mean, that's why, if you look through, especially the New Testament, there is tons of writing regarding suffering and hardship and difficulty. Jesus himself said, the servant's not greater than the master. If they hate me, they're going to hate you. He said also, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world, pointing them again to something even bigger. Peter actually writes himself. Peter says that, um, beloved, don't be surprised at fiery trials when they come upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. The Bible deals with the issue of suffering a lot and calls us to understand it, to look at it, and to think about it, but to think about it in a very specific way. And so Paul's approach, it's not stoic, he's not a drill sergeant, he's not naive, and he's not cheesy or fake. What he is, is he takes a big picture approach to what's going on. Paul takes a real big picture approach to all this. He realizes there's something much, much bigger that's going on here. Paul opens this section by saying, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus. Not a prisoner of Rome, but he says, I am a prisoner of Christ Jesus. What does he mean by that? This is Paul's way of saying, guys, listen, I'm a servant. From the day this mystery was given to me and I understood the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ in my life, I was all in. I didn't own myself anymore. I didn't hold on to my rights anymore. I wasn't living for myself or my own comforts anymore. I was completely sold out. I was a servant, enslaved, imprisoned, if you will, for Jesus Christ. From this moment on, nothing else matters to me but Jesus. This is a recurring theme in all of Paul's writings. Read Philippians where you'll see a lot about suffering and about suffering for Jesus. And so here's a little life principle that we can gain out of this actually right away, just throwing in sort of on the side. The things that discourage us most tend to reveal our heart and what we're really after. You ever thought about that? The things that throw you off the most, the things that upset you the most, the things that discourage you most, they reveal what it is you're really after on the inside. Let me give you an example. Let's say there's a woman who works at Harry and David here in town. She's got her master's degree in business. She loves business. She loves finances. She loves all this stuff. And she gets a job in marketing and management at Harry and David and loves what she does. And she's good at it. She also has a hobby. Her hobby is acting. She likes small-scale performances and plays and things like that. So from time to time, when she's not working, she goes and auditions for different plays, maybe at the little theater in Talent or maybe some of the ones in Ashland or whatever the case may be, and just enjoys doing it. That's her side gig. But also at Harry and David, there's another woman who works there. And she works at Harry and David too, but she does it. She has her master's degree in business. She has all of that. But she did that because she was told early on, hey, you want to be an actress, don't you? Yeah, I do. I love acting. I want to be an actress. This is who I am. I have to do it. If I'm not acting, I'm not happy. This is what I want to do. I got bad news for you. Um, You're probably going to be broke. So you might want to get a degree in something else. And so she went to school and got a business degree because she needed to make a living. She wanted to be able to put food on the table. And she got a job with her business master's degree at Harry and David. And she works in the same department, doing the same kind of work, makes the same amount of money. Also goes to the little theaters and applies for roles and auditions for different parts. Same women, or women almost identical, same roles, same everything, and they're auditioning for the same part, and neither one of them gets it. Now, what do you think the response differences might be from the two of them? For the first woman, she's a businesswoman. This is what she's into. That's just a hobby. It's not going to crush her. 
If she lost her job, that would crush her. But losing out on that part, that's not going to break her. I mean, it's a hobby, it's a bummer, but it's not going to devastate her. But for the other gal, this is what she lives for. This is her identity. I want to act. I've got to do those things. I don't find fulfillment in my work Monday through Friday. That's just what I do for a living. It's not who I am. This is who I am. And they're telling me I can't be that. That devastates me. And so what you see is the discouragement that is sure to ensue from that is going to reveal the differences into what these two women in particular are after. It's an issue of identity. So if your identity is wrapped up in your job and something bad goes down at work or God forbid you lose your job, it is going to wreck you in a way that's different from someone else if their identity was in something else. I'm not saying it wouldn't be a bummer for everyone, but the effect is going to be monumental on you because this is who you are. Your entire self is wrapped up in this thing. If it's your relationships, your marriage, your money, your sports team, whatever the case may be, you're going to take disappointment and discouragement much harder. I can remember my father growing up. I'm a Tar Heel basketball fan through and through. You guys know that for sure. My dad was so wrapped up in those things that if they lost a basketball game, you didn't talk to him for hours. And I mean that sincerely. You just stayed away. If they lost, no one talked to him, give him some space, maybe by tomorrow things might be cool. That was really the way it was because he was so wrapped up, so much of his identity was in this basketball game that he was watching on TV. It's an issue of identity. This is something that's been coming up throughout the scriptures, especially in particular, this, uh, this, our study here in Ephesians. So here's what Paul's saying. Guys, look, I am a prisoner of Jesus, and I've been given a stewardship of this mystery. And it is my pleasure to go to the Gentiles, to go to the people that are outside covenant with God, outside the household of faith, and declare to them the, the unsearchable riches of Jesus, the grace that's been poured out, and to let them know what's available to them. And they don't know, this is who I am. And I'm content, no matter what happens to me physically, I am content because I'm after Jesus. So they can take away my freedom. We sounded like William Wallace here for just a second, Braveheart. But um, this is what he's saying. They can take away my freedom. They can take away my home. They can beat me. They can do all of these things to me, but they cannot take away who I am in Jesus Christ. They cannot take away my place and my role in Jesus's mission. And so he's pointing them back to something that's much, much bigger to go, guys, don't be discouraged for me. Don't cry for me. Don't weep for me, man. I'm doing exactly what God has called me to do, and it is a privilege to do it. I'm sharing the gospel about Jesus. Okay, idealistically, Paul, that's good. But again, I, I hate to, to, to bring bad news, Paul, but you're in jail. So how exactly are you doing this now? You don't have a blog. There's no podcast from the jail. Like, you're telling me, like, I've got joy. Don't worry about me, but you're in prison. How can this be? But to understand Paul's approach on this, and this is something we need to understand ourselves, we need to understand something of God's mission. Look at verse 8 of this text. Paul says, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentile the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things? So that through the church, that's us, means not just Paul's mission, church's mission, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to all rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Here's what Paul's saying. It is the mission of the church and it is his mission given by God to showcase, as he says, the unsearchable riches of Christ. I mean, the goal of the church is not just to scare people into the kingdom. You guys know that, right? I, I've had conversations recently with people that are like, man, I got saved because some preacher just preached about hell like crazy and scared me to death. I don't even fully know what I believe yet. I just know I don't want to go there. And he was scary, so I said yes. And I became a Christian. Well, that's true. Hell is going to be lame. It's going to be devastating. It's going to hurt. It's going to be sad. It's going to be dark. It's going to be isolated. It's going to be horrible, and we should all avoid it. 
And we should desire heaven because God paints an incredible picture of what heaven and eternity is going to look like. And he describes it for a reason. He wants our senses to be awakened. He wants our desires to be awakened, that we would want to go to heaven. But the purpose of the church is not just to scare people into eternity. The purpose of the church is actually to lift up Jesus Christ as being infinitely more valuable and more desirable than anything else on earth, even heaven. The call of the church is to point people to who Jesus is. And even in the things that we see here on earth, the things that we enjoy, those should all still point to Jesus. So like hobbies, I'm a fisherman, I love to go fly fishing, I absolutely love it, but, but it's got to go somewhere beyond just catching a fish. Like God teaches me about who he is, about how incredibly creative he is, about his skill as creator when I'm standing in rivers and when I'm looking at these fish and all of this stuff. It, it's showing me something that's supposed to point beyond those things to the one who's behind them, and that is God. That's why he says the heavens declare the glory of God. When we look at the stars, we don't stop in our wonder and glory looking at stars, but we should push beyond that and go, isn't God amazing that he could do such a thing? So that whatever it is we're doing, no matter how much we enjoy it, the point is not the thing. Even in your football games today, when you're watching your favorite team going, yeah, and you're cheering and all that kind of stuff, it shouldn't stop with like pouring glory onto a player or a team. But even that should go beyond something and go, and just look what God is capable of. And even just look at the common grace in giving us sporting events to be able to enjoy. Isn't God kind to allow us things like this that we enjoy on an entertainment level? God is good. And so for the culture around us, it's not just about beating them down for sin. It's not about that at all. It's not about scaring them out of hell and into heaven. It is about lifting Jesus Christ up as the ultimate value in all the earth. No hobby will ever compare to him. No job will ever uh, uh, be able to fulfill you the way Jesus can and his mission does. Everything else on earth, no matter how good it might be, will ultimately let you down if you in any way try to hold that up above Jesus. It's called idolatry, and it will not satisfy. So our purpose and the church's purpose is to lift up Jesus as the prize. Man, we should want to go to heaven because there's no pain, but that's not the ultimate prize. The ultimate prize is we want to go to heaven because Jesus is there. Like, we, we want to go to heaven because there's no more suffering. We don't have to talk about abortion. We don't have to talk about those things anymore. And there's just joy. We want to go to heaven for that. But that's not the ultimate reason. That's like icing on the cake. Jesus is there. That's why we want to go to heaven. Jesus Christ is the prize. Amen? This is what it is. And listen, but listen to me. How else can you better showcase the value of Jesus over everything else on earth than when you cling to him during suffering? When you're going through things in life and the things of, world, of the world maybe are being taken from you. When doctors say things like cancer and you still hold to Jesus, that gives testimony to the world that nothing else can. When everything's great, when you're rolling in a Mercedes and making six figure a year and your team just won the Super Bowl and all that stuff and you talk about clinging to Jesus, well, people are like, well, I would too if I got all that. I'll take Jesus. Do I get a Mercedes too? Do I get to pick the color? Is it just a sign like a Mary Kay, they're all pink? Like, how does that work? But I'll, I'll take Jesus. But you know what that does? That showcases what? Things. That showcases stuff. That doesn't showcase Jesus. But when we go through hardships, this is part of God's plan so that when people see, man, Jeff is like, Jeff lost his job, Jeff lost this, 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 but he's still clinging to Jesus. And, and somehow in the midst of all that, he finds joy in that? How can that be? Dude, you lost everything. You should be devastated. And we then, like Paul, can go, devastated? No, look, it's a bummer. We're discouraged. This is real. We're not going to be fake, cheesy Christians about it. Yeah, I wish I had my house. Yay, I wish I, I wish I didn't have cancer. Yeah, absolutely, all of those things. But we can go, but listen, that's not what I'm ultimately after. The thing that my heart ultimately desires is not a big house or a Super Bowl ring for my favorite team. The thing my heart desires is Jesus, and no man can snatch me out of his hand. I have Jesus, so I'm going to be all right. And even Jesus himself promises me that there will come a day when I'm never going to again have to worry about a house. I'm never again going to have to worry about a job. 
I'm never again going to have to worry about suffering or pain or cancer. He's going to take all of those things away. So if suffering for Jesus right now showcases his glory and achieves his purpose and brings me to that end, I'm fine. Doesn't mean we don't have our days, amen? Paul did. I was writing in Corinthians where he said there were days that I despaired even of life. Paraphrase, I wanted to die. But that God came and reminded him, my grace is sufficient for you. There is an eternal weight of glory being worked that is far more valuable than anything else here on earth. And so Paul's telling them, there's something bigger going on. And even my suffering, he says, is for your glory, verse 13. Because even as I suffer and you see me writing to you about the grandeur of Christ while I'm in prison, it's teaching you about the glory of Christ. It's for your good, these things. So don't freak out, man. Be followers of Jesus. Be followers of Jesus. Man, guys, we need Paul's perspective on life. Paul is bomb-proof. They throw him in jail. He starts worship services and saves the guards. They beat him and he goes, man, this is sufferings of Christ. I count it an honor to be beat just like Jesus did. They threaten to kill him. He goes, well, to die is gain. Like there's nothing they can do to get to this guy. He's bomb proof because the very thing that he is most focused on and most desires in life is Jesus and they can't touch that. Now, I want you to consider something here. What Paul does here, there's something specifically that he talks about that is just absolutely beautiful. Look at verse 10 and we'll be done. It says, so that through the church, that's us, everybody say that's us, that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. That word manifold is a really unique word. It's only used here in all the Bible. It it means diverse, but but much more than that. It means, it's a very unusual word. Half of the word poikilos means wrought in various colors. So it means diverse, lots of different colors. And and you might think, okay, so he's talking about unity in the church, Jeff, like we covered last week. He's talking about, you know, um, African-American and white and Hispanic and all these different things making up the church. No, it's not. It's an artistic phrase. And, And the first part that he adds to that actually means many. So it's as if he's saying many, many varied colors. And it's, it's kind of an artistic expression. And he's saying it's the church's mission to present to the world and be a part of the many, many varied colors. Let me see if I can help you understand a little better what this means. I didn't ask for his permission to tell you this um, because he would have said no. And it's easier to get forgiveness than permission sometimes. Amen. So there's a guy in our church named Carmine. And Carmine does our slides. This Ephesians slide right here was done by Carmine. He's a graphic artist, but he's much more than a guy who just sits at a computer and comes up with an image. He's an artist. And so Carmine, when he is putting together a slide, say, for example, this Ephesians study, Carmine doesn't just go, hey, that looks pretty cool. Let's call that Ephesians. He doesn't just go on the web or or go outside, take a couple pictures and go, "Uh, that looks cool with that and that color matches. We'll just do this stuff. That looks good. Then I'll write Ephesians on it and it'll look cool and we'll be done. He doesn't do that at all. Um, I learned that early on when I asked Carmine to do a slide for us, and he, he set up a meeting with me a long time ago, and he said, let's, let's talk about this book. I think it might have been Corinthians. I can't remember that we were doing. <coughs> Excuse me. And so Carmine came and sat down and said, let's talk about the book. What are the themes? What's Paul saying in Corinthians? What's going on in the culture at that time? I got Carmine books that go through and summarize and and dissect the book and other books throughout the Bible. And Carmine spent time, like a lot of time, studying, praying, thinking, understanding what the book of Corinthians was about so that in the end, what he does is he has this, if you will, blank canvas that he says, I'm going to use this blank canvas to tell the story of Corinthians. In this case, he did it with Ephesians, the idea of there's a thumbprint in the background because we talk about identity here and our theme name, becoming who you are. Like the idea is not just to come up with something clever and attractive and call it Ephesians, but something that tells the story of Ephesians. And that's what he does. Well, guys, Carmine gets that from God. That is something God placed in Carmine's heart, made part of Carmine's identity that speaks to us about who God is because God also, according to this passage especially, is an artist. And God has a blank canvas that we call history. 
time. And in God, everything is being painted onto this blank canvas to tell the glory, grandeur, and infinite worth of Jesus Christ. And he takes brushes known as us, and he uses these brushes to paint strokes, to tell stories, and all of it comes together to, to give this masterpiece that is known as the gospel and this redemptive history that we study here in our word so that one day people can look back at these things that are going on and just marvel at God's amazing work. And here's the beauty of it. We are part of that painting. We are the brushes, if you will, and there are no failed strokes there are no wasted strokes in God's glorious masterpiece. He's using us in ways we don't even yet understand to tell the world about his grandeur, to tell the world how good he is. He does not waste strokes. Everything is on point, and it is a masterpiece. Not that we are a masterpiece, but the work of God points to him as the most valuable and glorious thing in the universe. So heritage, this is our conclusion. This is it right here. We've got to be on board with that. Like we have opportunity to look to that mission, to be part of what God's doing, to make Jesus Christ our focus and to trust him with whatever brush strokes he's doing around us in our life, knowing that it's about him. It's life is not about us. And if we turn our eyes inward, then men, we would totally get discouraged if you were like Paul. We would totally be discouraged when we lose our job or when we have these things. It would be devastating to us and it would make sense because everything's about your life and your life's falling apart. Of course you're discouraged. Of course you're depressed. Of course people are suicidal. Of course people are using drugs and trying to find outs all over the place. But all of those things are letting them down. And Paul goes, what we don't understand is life's not about us. Life is about the work that Jesus Christ is doing and that he's called us to partner in. And if we will be understanding of this and on point with this program and realize that there is a real kingdom coming that we are called to participate in right now, that that's how you get bomb-proof when life trials come your way. That's how when cancer comes, you're not rocked and devastated. That's how. You can show people around you in your life more than ever the infinite worth of Jesus Christ, that this is who he is. And, and here's the thing, guys. It's going to be hard, and it will guarantee suffering. Jesus made it really clear choosing to follow him is choosing a hard road. So much so that we should look at that and look at our own lives and go, man, if I'm not suffering anywhere, something might be wrong. If I'm not experiencing any of the difficulties Paul talks about, if I'm not experiencing any of the difficulties that Jesus talked about, well, one, either the Bible's true or I'm true. So if I'm following Jesus, so to speak, but I'm having an easy go of it and I'm never struggling, I'm never suffering, I never have hardship, may, maybe something's off kilter because Jesus made it really clear when we step up to serve his kingdom in the world around here, then the world's not going to just go along complicitly with that. Satan's going to come. The world's going to come against you. It is not a popular message. And so for us, it's going to be hard. There's going to be times when you have to make decisions and personal sacrifice has to come out of that. Whether it's something like what Jeff talked about with Save the Storks. Do I, do I go to an extra dinner this month or do I funnel that money instead towards this program and I'll just, I just won't eat out that one extra time this month? Is that the sacrifice that we'll make? Or is it, I'm going to speak out against this thing that I see going on that is not okay. Um, and I know that it's going to make me a target. I know that my friends are not going to like me over these things. I know what I'm saying is not popular. But this is God's program and God's agenda. And this is what God's called me to. So I have to choose that, even though it means things are going to be hard. That's sacrifice. That's difficulty. Following Jesus guarantees hardship. But the beautiful thing is this, God never wastes strokes. And you will never, ever regret it. You may not see the full fruit of what God's doing through you here on this side of eternity. You may not see that. But oh, that day, when our faith is made sight, when we actually see Jesus for as valuable as he is, because we don't even fully understand it right now, but when we actually see him face to face and we understand how valuable he is and how glorious and majestic he is, there's not going to be one ounce of regret going, I wish I'd have held on to that one other thing. 
I wish I'd have pursued that other thing a little bit more. I wish I hadn't have sacrificed that. I mean, even the biblical rewards, the, the elders in Revelation who are given crowns as reward for their service of Jesus are throwing their crowns down at the feet of Jesus saying, worthy, worthy is the lamb. I'm telling you right now, God doesn't waste strokes in this masterpiece. And I'm telling you right now, any suffering, any sacrifice, anything that we do to serve Jesus on this day, anything we're obedient in following him to do, you will never regret that, ever. But there is regret everywhere else. The things of this world are bathed in regret. Never heard a godly man on his deathbed going, what's going to happen with my money? But I've heard many people on their deathbed thankful for the grace and mercy of Jesus. So Heritage, this is what God calls us to. So I'm begging you, will you spend some time with the Lord in this next season and say, God, what are you calling me to? How do I as the church, not the organization church, but me as part of the church that God is building up, God, what are you calling me to? And then ask him for the strength to do it. Because our own flesh isn't gonna have that. Our flesh is gonna want comfort. Our flesh wants our team to win, our couch to be soft, our drinks to be cold, and our pizza to be hot. That's what it wants, right? But, but what if the Spirit of God has something different for us? Are we willing to make those sacrifices? I'll tell you this much. When we understand the reality of the gospel and what Jesus Christ sacrificed to bring us into his kingdom, how can we not? How can we not serve a God who gave up so much for us? Amen? So here, to spend some time on this. Let's make our faith genuine and lived out so that people can see what, what the kingdom of God looks like. And let's make sure in our lives that we are elevating Jesus as the supreme worth of all the universe. Will you guys stand with me and let me pray for you. God, we've been talking about this issue of identity so much, Lord, and just... Please continue to help us, Lord, to make our identity uh, something we find in you. Lord, in a world that wants us to seek our identity in so many different things, Lord, help us to be able to bring our focus back around to understand who we are, who you've made us to be, who you've turned us into by your grace and your gospel. God, help us not to get so easily distracted by the things of this world and help us to live, Lord, knowing that your kingdom is coming and that time is short. Lord, help us to break our idolatrous grip on things. Lord, our flesh is weak even when our spirit is willing. And so, God, we need your spirit to lead us and to help us with that, God. If you don't empower us to do it, we will fail. So I pray, God, you would just lead your church. God, I pray for each person here that they would find time this week to really spend with you thinking that through. Because, God, you have a mission for all of us. And I pray, God, they would hear your voice, they would find it in scripture, and that they would understand their place in your kingdom so that every single one of us can be as unshakable as Paul. And God, we're just thankful that you've given us yourself, that you would send your son to die on our behalf is an incredible mystery, God. And we're so grateful. And we're so grateful you've revealed that mystery to us. And now, God, may you lead us to go and share that mystery with others. Be with these guys, Lord, as they go, as they go to work, as they go to school, as they go to family and friends. Lord, may they continue to carry the gospel everywhere. And Lord, may you just save many. We pray these things in Jesus' name.